0: sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as always, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Good How to, are you, Good sir? to hear your voice. You know, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. you're at home today, and Mandu's prowling around. So, uh um, yeah. those who have been uh, following Mandu on Twitter uh, may get a an impromptu um, uh, interaction. We we don't know yet, but um, yes, we'll, we'll see <laughs> He's how he crashed. goes.
1: He's crashed out on the carpet at the moment, but looking, <laughs> I'm sure he can hear his name being mentioned. He's looking very
0: suspiciously at me. Yes, they do that. What what's he up to? Yes, shall of, I
1: scratch his eyes?
0: mm mm-hmm. Let's just see how we go. Uh, Today, we've got a lot to talk about. Of course, the Indian moon landing uh, ended in failure, which has been very, very sad. I think hopes were high and things were looking good right to the last second and then something went horribly wrong. So we'll look at that. Uh, New research regarding the lakes on Titan. And we're going to uh, revisit the dinosaur asteroid where they've been um, sort of getting down and dirty uh, in the Gulf of Mexico to try and learn as much as they can and they've, they've found something, which we'll talk about. And we've got questions about the expanding universe and uh, uh, revisiting the short-haul ha- travel idea for astronauts and rotational gravity. So um, let's uh, get into those a little later on, Fred. But, um, yeah, this um, moonshot by the uh, Indian Space Research Organisation uh, has ended in failure. Um, it looked so good for so long, and then something... Dreadfully wrong happened. Uh, they're still trying to piece it together, from what I can tell. <laughs> Maybe literally. That's Maybe right. Literally.
1: So, so the good the good news part of this story um, is that the orbiter, uh, Chandrayaan two itself. Uh, is in perfect working order. It's in orbit around the moon. And I think it's got a year's worth of data to, uh, to, to or a year's worth of science to carry out um, before uh, the mission ends. So we've got, a, you know, a, a really positive side to the story as well. However, the Vikram lander, which uh, was dropped or uh, propelled down to the moon on uh, Saturday, the 7th of September, uh, apparently functioned perfectly until it was within about two kilometres of the surface um, and then contact uh, was lost. Um, so that's, you know, not a good sign. No, definitely um, not. Uh, even though, it, uh, even though um, for a moon landing, you've got to have the thing essentially under autonomous control because there's You can't, you know, bring the signal back to Earth and say, oh, tweak it here, because there's there's that 2.6 second um, time delay between signals going from the moon to the Earth and then back again. So it's um, and that's even if you, you know, if you you instantaneously respond. So it it, it may well have survived. But um, the present news is that the lander has been located on the surface by the orbiter, mm. uh, using uh, infrared cameras, actually, and they found something that is thermally warmer than the, than the background uh, lunar surface, uh, and that's how it was identified. Um, what is not known, at least uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, and this is really as of yesterday, uh, what is not known is whether the lander is in one piece or many pieces.
0: I, I've uh, heard some conflicting stories about... Um... What might have happened, they're talking potential engine failure. Uh, another yeah. theory is that the descent was good, but they miscalculated the moon's gravity, which means it hit the ground harder than it should have. Uh, the observe, uh, the observe observations from the um, uh, orbital craft seem to suggest it is upright, but on a slant. The okay. bottom line is they, they still don't know exactly what went wrong. Yeah that's that's the news I got most to... likely engine failure but they can't confirm that and I suppose they they're trying to communicate with it and hope that they can get some activity out of it but at the moment... Yeah I
1: mean that's right it's yeah you, you, you know given that you've got an orbiter that um, that is under the same control maybe it would be possible to to bring some information back mm. and so at the moment that is you know, where where the situation is. But, um, well, maybe fingers crossed for Vikram, the the lander, which
0: um, maybe it did land and maybe bits of it are intact. Yeah, um, it doesn't look good for the rover side of the... No, that's right. Situation. Which is within,
1: the, yes, which is within the uh, within the lander.
0: Uh, either way, you know, it's still
1: a, a monumental achievement for the Indian Space Agency, um, uh, and, and
0: all credit to them for for getting this far. And I'm sure that they will succeed in the long run. Mm, yeah, uh, it, yeah. Just uh, don't look at it as uh, absolute failure. Um, get up, dust yourself off, and go again. That's, <laughs> the, that's the best way. And find a few. That could be a song, you know, Andrew. Find a few gazillion rupee while you're at it. <laughs> Which probably
1: will help. Actually, the, the Indian, um, Indian Space Agency runs on a very, very um, economic budget. It's very tight budget. In- interesting.
0: Maybe that was part of the problem. Well... There you go. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that, you know. Fingers crossed that they'll salvage something out of it. I, I do hope that maybe it'll just suddenly come to life. Who knows? We'll wait and see. Now, uh, let's move along to uh, from our moon to another moon and that of Titan, uh, which the Cassini mission has been um, sort of focused on, and they've uh, made a bit of a discovery about the lakes on Titan. This is fascinating. Uh, I, I think it is too. It's um, it's work
1: done by an international uh, an international team of scientists, uh, and in fact they're led by an Italian uh, uh, planetary scientist, Giuseppe Mitri. Uh, he um, and his team have looked afresh at some of the information uh, that has come back. Uh, from Cassini, uh, actually during its final flyby of Titan, um, I can't remember how many flybys of Titan it had, but it's, it's certainly, uh, I think it was 20 or 30, something like that, it might be more. Um, but this was, you know, really right at the end of the of the Cassini mission, uh, which was which ended almost exactly two years ago. So what has happened is that um, these Uh, scientists have used the radar imaging data that has come back from Cassini. Uh, Remember, Titan's got this thick atmosphere or pretty opaque atmosphere, which is laced with hydrocarbon smog, uh, and that prevents visibility directly down to the surface, uh, except under rather special conditions. You can do it with infrared at certain times of the Saturnian year, Uh, but radar is the way to do it. So the radar Images that have been analysed show um, a, f- a feature of the the smaller lakes, which, uh, like all the season lakes of Titan, are predominantly around the north polar region of the the moon. Um, like uh, so, so the smaller lakes seem to have these rims around them um, that stand much higher than the the lake level itself. And higher than the surrounding landscape, so it's almost like a wall around around these lakes, uh, up to well, you know, tens of meters high, oh, okay. maybe hundreds of feet high. They're not they're not little
0: they're not little things, they're really significant structures. Um, Which and, would be easily explained if it was a gorge or something, but it's a lake.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, it's a lake and. The, the the key thing is that the larger seas don't show these the larger seas uh w- which are bigger than the great lakes of america they're the, they're bigger than the, the the biggest freshwater lakes on earth um they don't have these features hmm. they they do have very well defined edges um uh you know very well defined shorelines if i can put it that way uh, but uh they don't have these rims around them which only the smaller ones do and so uh that's caused a lot of head scratching as to why this should be the case and uh that's just been published actually within the last few days uh that um essentially the the feeling is that the bigger seas formed by um, methane pooling in the icy surface of Titan. Remember, the surface is not rock, it's solid ice. Yeah. <clears throat> and so um, if you get, you know, undulations in that, the methane pools in it and, <clears throat> excuse me, under certain circumstances, the methane uh, can actually eat into the ice. So you, what you get is a situation where you get an ever-growing sea or lake and around the edge of it, there's just a standard kind of boundary, just a, a normal shoreline. But the speculation about these ones with the rims, the smaller ones, is that they are caused by explosions, not, not kind of chemical detonations, but um, physical explosions of nitrogen, which has been liquid, suddenly turning into um, a, basically a, a, a gas underneath the surface of the oh, ice. okay.
0: blowing blowing off the surface. I was so you I see, I, I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking some kind of impact, but it's it's op- it's come from underneath. It's blown out. That,
1: that's the feeling. Yes, the the so um there's a <clears throat> excuse me, there's a basically um, you know a story to tell uh, that the the atmosphere of Titan uh, is a is a really good greenhouse gas atmosphere and keeps titan warmer than it otherwise would be even though you know its surface temperature is still i think it's about minus 180 minus 190 celsius it's very cold um but it, it, if you've got um a climate change a slow climate change uh, on titan <clears throat> excuse me again um andrew i've got I've got a, a Titan in my throat. i have so got a right. frog it. in your throat. Freddo froggy, Freddo froggy that's right. <laughs> so um, uh, t- there's been periods where it's been slightly warmer, periods where it's been slightly cooler. And the thinking is, when Titan is cooler, um, you've got uh, a nitrogen cycle in the atmosphere. So you get nitrogen rain uh, and nitrogen evaporation. And the thinking is that uh, the nitrogen has collected in pools um, sort of beneath the surface, underneath the icy surface of Titan, almost like a kind of water table, but with nit- nitrogen rather than um, rather than water. And then the suggestion is that if you've got these put these sort of um, you know uh, uh, masses of liquid nitrogen uh, uh, in the crust of Titan, um, if you get some warming then that liquid nitrogen vaporizes, expands pretty quickly and blows out a crater Uh which has rins. And um, that's, you know, a very very interesting uh, and, um, you know, new analysis of what we see. There's actually a lovely comment from the Cassini project scientist herself, uh, Linda Spilker of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, who, by the way, We are expecting to come to Australia later in the year um, to do some lectures, which will be brilliant. Uh, But what Linda says is this is a completely different explanation for the steep rims around those small lakes, which has been a tremendous puzzle. As scientists continue to mine the treasure trove of Cassini data, we'll keep putting more and more pieces of the puzzle together over the next decades, we will come to understand the Saturn system better and better. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's still a work in progress. It's great that two years after the spacecraft vanished, these new results are still coming out. Um, and yeah, it would, um, yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's, it's great to see. Yeah, it, it's sort of like medical studies on Earth. Uh, you can get studies from studies, and uh, you can go back and look at, uh, you know, 10 or 15 studies on one particular topic, collate the data, and go, hang on a minute. And learn something yeah. new. Uh, so that's that's very exciting. And, and you know what? It sounds so logical. It sounds like a, a pretty simple answer to a, um, uh, an issue that has had them scratching their heads. So uh, he's probably, they're probably on the money with this one. So um, exactly. it would be good to get that confirmed. But, uh, yeah, fabulous. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson and Mandu. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their their business model that I Particularly liked, and a couple of years down the track, honestly can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing? Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com/ space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now back to the show.
1: Okay, we checked all four systems and came with a go.
0: Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we revisit an old friend, the Chicxulub Impact Crater in the Gulf of Mexico, where an asteroid struck the Earth and helped with the demise of the dinosaurs. Now, you and I have spoken about this in the past because they've been visiting the site and, in particular, uh, drilling into the um, uh, the underlayers of the impact point to see what they could see. And we, we've learned a bit. Uh, we... we we learned that this um, asteroid was probably not the absolute reason for the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs, but uh, certainly did um, make a, a big impact, boom boom, on their, on their uh, <laughs> ultimate destruction. Uh, but uh, with or without it, they probably would have disappeared anyway. Uh, certainly changed the atmosphere dramatically for a long time on Earth. Uh, caused major t- uh, tidal waves around the planet. It was uh, it would have been a horrible place to be at that exact moment. Uh, but um, yeah, in the course of this research that they've been doing, they've uh, been finding some fascinating uh, information and now they've released a little bit more about um, what's what's down there at the impact point.
1: Indeed, and this research comes from uh, uh, Sean Goodlake, who's at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, it builds on, uh, in fact, I think what it's um, what it's actually analysing is something that we spoke about probably a couple of years ago, and that was the core core drillings uh, core sampling mm. uh, that was being done there uh, and you might remember that there was a, <clears throat> a drilling vessel which had the lovely name of myrtle That's and right. myrtle uh, floated in the gulf of mexico and drilled down into uh, essentially the the region uh, which is known as the peak ring of a crater so um craters by large impacts have a an outer wall but uh, they also have uh, An and inner ring as well, <clears throat> excuse me, which is sometimes known as the peak ring. Now, the peak ring's well and truly worn away, as is the outer wall actually of the Chicxulub crater. Mm. But um, the the, um, the sort of the, the the peak ring is still obvious from if you do um, you know geomagnetic geo, um, surveys and things of that sort, you can see the effect of the you can see the structures underneath the surface. So they chose a site to drill in and it was actually the international ocean discovery program that, <clears throat> that did the, the, the drilling <clears throat> back in 2016. In fact, it's a bit longer than I remember it as <laughs> three years ago rather than two. Wow, uh, and fast. so, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So they, they uh, are looking uh, at uh, b- basically drilled into that peak ring region. So um, the, The structures that have been revealed really tell a a quite cogent and quite complex story. And remember that all the action took place within the first minutes or hours of the impact itself. Mm. Um, I, on my computer, have a simulation, which I think may even have come from the University of Texas. I can't remember where it comes from, but it's a simulation showing uh, the uh, immediate effect on the geography uh, of the impact and that the Earth's surface behaves more like a liquid. Uh, you get this kind of splash, uh, which is over a matter of five minutes or so. You get mountain ranges higher than the Himalayas being built and then falling away um, very, very dramatically. Of course, it's it's being made molten. Um, <clears throat> so what uh, what was the... The series of events um, that have been revealed by the, you know, by the the, the, yeah, the analysis of these uh, core samples. And it, uh, basically, it was that the impact landed in the ocean, the uh, impactor landed in the ocean, <clears throat> and the blast itself just took, you know, blew, blew the water away. And so what there would have been was this zone of, of molten rock, which is effectively liquid. Um, which is now basically solidified its lava. But what's really interesting is that after that, shortly afterwards, the water came back again <laughs> um, and uh, basically hit the the, the 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 molten rock and had a, exploded into this, you know, high-pressure steam. Uh, and so you've got shattered rock, uh, which has co- been caused by that, uh, which... Uh, also shows up in the, in the core samples. And then on top of that, there's something like 100 metres, nearly 100 metres of sediments which are like gravel.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and they're, they're, graded, they're graded. So there's bigger lumps at the bottom and smaller lumps at the, at the top. Um, and it, it apparently, you know, is once again symptomatic of water being rushed away and then coming back full of full of rock from the the blast uh, that then settled to make this sort of gravel stuff um, really interesting you know um, uh, on, on top of that there's a layer of material that might have been the result of the tsunami that the uh, that the impact created created because the 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 out you know the the outward um Stream of water that would have come from the impact actually would bounce off the the high higher mountain ranges, and mm-hmm. apparently the nearest mountains uh, are in um, Mexico or what is now Mexico, about 800 kilometers away. So they they bounce off that and then come back, and you get another layer of sediment on top of the the stuff that's already there. So it's analysis of all this that that allows this. Really interesting story um, to be told of what the uh, you know what the scenario is immediately after the impact. Yes, oh, hello, um, yeah, he's agreeing with that, which is good. <laughs> just, I'm glad to hear it. Um, but the uh, the thing that makes it really interesting to me, Andrew, is the the sort of uh, analysis of the uh, of the material of the rocks because the stuff that's been found in the crater, and this is all you know—the stuff that's been washed back by the returning tsunami wave. It's actually low in in sulphur, uh, and uh, that contrasts with what the general sulphur level in the area is. In other words, there's uh, relatively high sulphur in the rocks in the. In the In the zone where the impact happened, but the stuff that 's left after the impact is low in sulfur, and the suggestion is that that caused that was caused by the sulfur vaporizing uh, by the heat of the impact um, mixed with water you 've got this basically this haze of uh, what they' called sulfate aerosols. And that is maybe the smoking gun for the dinosaurs because that haze would have prevented sunlight reaching the surface as it normally would. Uh, And the suggestion by these researchers is that it might have dropped the temperature uh, by uh, maybe 25 degrees Celsius, something like that. That's a big Uh, drop. It's huge. That's right. So you've suddenly got a world that's. Well, cold and actually much a bit below freezing, the average global temperature is about fifteen degrees Celsius, mm. <clears throat> and the suggestion is that this might have lasted for twenty years or so, something like that
0: <clears throat> yeah and um, the, the the power of the impact they say was what three hundred nuclear bombs or something um, oh uh, no, no, many many more oh, um, okay. it's, uh, yeah this is this is global uh, you know
1: it was a fifteen kilometer diameter object um, it 's got global effect it 's uh, uh let me just well the the yard the yardstick that I remember from years ago is that an impact by a one hundred meter object would have the same devastation effect as a one hundred megaton nuclear bomb, and a one hundred megaton bomb has never been tested in the earth 's atmosphere. So, um, and that's just a hundred meter objects. This is fifteen kilometers in diameter. So you 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 kind of you're talking about global extinction, which of course uh, happened. Um, I, I might just mention, if I may, just for completeness here. There's a there is a very n- nice complete account of of this research, which has come from. Uh, Richard Lovett, who is a, a, a science writer, he writes for Cosmos magazine. And so if you check that out, you'll find his article there, mm. The Rocks Below a Famous
0: Crater. It's a very uh, detailed account. Actually, I think uh, I've just done a quick search, and um, I think the impact would have been, they say, the equivalent of two 050 megaton TNT bombs. That sounds about right. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> that uh, sounds about Uh, That would literally blow your mind. Hmm. And the planet. And the planet, yeah. Well, I I did actually watch that video while you were talking, uh, or a video of the... um, construction yeah. of those events, and they showed sort of impact, and then a couple of weeks later, and then a couple of months later, and then. Okay. Years later. That one. That no, that's a different one. I think that was done through yeah. the University of Chicago, but uh, it is um, yeah quite a telling series of events, and even years afterwards, um, the the uh, effects were still pretty prominent on Earth, and uh, now we're 65 million years later or something, and um, yeah, we, we've got to wait another 35 million years before we get hit again, which is good on our average. <laughs> On average, that's right. That's handy. Uh, Um, These things don't wait for averages, though. (laughs) No, they do not. That's the problem with averages. Uh, The great thing
1: about, sorry, Andrew, the great thing about, you know, by today's standards, a 15-kilometre asteroid will be very easily visible
0: uh, with the telescopes that we now have at our disposal. Unlike one that hit us the other day that they didn't see till the last second, and then when they did, they went, oh, it's going to miss, but no, bang, into the planet (laughs) like like a baseball into a glove. But, but it was, this was, yeah, a few meters across. Yeah, or something, it was wasn't it? too small to do anything. it to vaporise. But um, yeah, I guess you can't you can't see everything. But as long as we see the nasty ones, that's that's all that matters. That's right. Mm. All right, uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, before we get into today's questions, a shout-out again to our patrons who are supporting us on Patreon. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. Uh, We really do appreciate it. And if you would like to support Space Nuts through Patreon uh, and just uh, maybe spend a couple of dollars a month to to support the program, you can do that too at patreon.com slash space nuts. Uh, that's patreon.com slash space Nuts. check it out um, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing to to have uh, the audience come to us and say we'd like to support you how do we do it That's why we set it up and uh, yeah people have, uh, have uh, the people will the, the people came they pe- and supported us which is fantastic and we really appreciate it. Uh, and if you would like to meet fellow space nuts supporters, you can do that on the space nuts. Um, Facebook group. Uh, all you have to do is put uh, "Facebook Space Nuts Group" in your Facebook search engine, and you will uh, you will find the group and uh, yeah request um, membership, and we'll sort it all out for you. But uh, those numbers are growing very very fast indeed in both on both platforms. So fabulous stuff, and thanks for your continuing support of the Space Nuts podcast. We're into episode 170, Fred. By the way, which is. Just, uh, I can't believe we've done that many episodes. It's just, (laughs) it just, it it seems like only yesterday we got, got this thing started. Yeah, that's right. But it's fabulous. People are enjoying it and that's the main thing and, uh, (laughs) Uh, and and the number of people that actually email us and say, wow, look, I've really learned a lot, and uh, that that is fabulous too. Uh, Now, to some questions from people who want to learn more, uh, this one from Alan Weston. Hi, Alan, thank you for your question. Uh, So my understanding of the expanding universe is that it's not so much the galaxies moving away from each other, more that the fabric of space is expanding, putting more space between the galaxies. So I have two things. I'm wondering about. I assume this means all space is expanding, the space between you and me, the space between my house and the next-door neighbour. Sometimes that can't happen fast enough. The space between an atom's nucleus and its electrons. Uh, And if space is expanding and space-time is the one thing, is time expanding also? And is this why the expansion is speeding up? Or is it the opposite, and when we look millions of light years into the universe, we are seeing a time when time was faster? I think my brain just exploded, <laughs> Alan Weston. Yeah, I think so. Well, actually, previous segment, our brain's exploded. But anyway, um, we'll, we'll see if we can tackle that one, Fred.
1: Yeah, so um, part one, uh, yes, um, Alan's absolutely right that uh, it is the it's the, it's space itself that's expanding, um, We. You know, it's 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 only when you look at the universe on very large scales that you actually see it. So while uh, technically the space between his house and the one next door is is expanding, (laughs) you would have to wait a very, very long time indeed uh, before you noticed even one inch or a centimeter of expansion. Um, I I should work out the time that it would take for you to move an inch, uh, but i have time to do that at the moment. Um, um, it, it, it depends on something called the Hubble constant. That's the, um, the, the the number that dictates how fast it's expanding, and it basically is a velocity, and it's a, it's related to um, the distance, how far away you look. So uh, yes, space is expanding. Now the, it's really interesting what uh, Alan says that that um, is time expanding also, and in 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 our local environment, the answer is no, because we're in the same reference frame as the space, if I can put it that way. So um, you you don't see uh, any change in time. But the second part of the question, um, and, and I'll read it again, is the opposite. When we look millions, is it the opposite? When we look millions of light years into the universe, we are seeing a time when time was faster, and I think that's essentially true. Although, actually, what we're seeing is a is a slowdown of time because our vantage point here. If you if you think, okay, we're looking back into the universe to a time when the universe was much denser than it is now, and that means uh, math, matter was concentrated more tightly so you're looking back to a time when gravitational time dilation uh takes place and time passes more slowly in the uh, to to our eyes uh as we see it from our vantage point and and um, i i think that is probably true to the extent that when we look at uh, when our physics applies to the early universe what we find is things happening over incredibly small timescales. So this process known as inflation, uh, where the universe expanded from the size of a hair to the size of a galaxy, uh, in in something like 10 to the minus 33 of a second. I can't remember the exact number. It's wow. about that. Um, that's it, it, it's probably partly that sort of effect that you're seeing. Um, I haven't, I have to say, I haven't really studied this in detail, but but it, it is something I've thought about in the past, that uh, the gravitational time dilation effect on our view of the early universe. Um, I should go and talk to some of my cosmology pundits about that and get a more definitive answer. But I think Alan's thinking is is certainly interesting and possibly on the right lines. Uh, however, um, where it does break down and this is Alan Tiki I'm talking about is that the the accelerated expansion needs to have a different mechanism it 's not just a, a an illusion of gravitational time dilation it 's a real effect in the ex, um, you know in the expanding universe
0: the accelerated expansion which we put down to something called dark energy aha uh-huh. okay um, thank you alan very very you're a smarty pants very very good question though. <laughs> Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just hard to imagine that the space between you and me, or the neighbour's house, is is actually uh, an ongoing thing. But as you say, it's it's going to take a very long time for a small amount of space to be created. So uh, yeah, it, it, that's correct. But just just to
1: to clarify that a bit, um, you know, the, the the force that holds the earth together is is as Mandu says, is <laughs> well able. Quite so. Well able to overcome that. The, the, the forces between atoms are much, much more much more capable of holding things together than the expansion of the universe is going to be to pull them apart. Yeah. And likewise, galaxy, uh, gravity, holding galaxies together, uh, the that the gravity is much more uh, efficient as a mechanism for holding things together than the expansion of the universe is for
0: pulling it apart, just because of the, the
1: small amount that's involved.
0: Indeed. All right. Thanks, Alan. Let's move on. Uh, hi, Andrew and Fred. Big fan of the show here. Uh, Love the topics you cover and the way you deliver them, uh, so please don't stop. Definitely, We were just planning that. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, my question is a follow-up to Devin's uh, daily space travel question in episode 168. Fred mentioned there is an adjustment period that the human body goes through when arriving in space, similar to jet lag. How do you think this translates to rotational gravity on a space station? Astronauts would surely switch between gravity and microgravity much quicker than what has been observed in the past. So do you think the adjustment period would stay the same or reduce as the astronauts get used to it? Uh, also, he's got a second question uh, regarding the al metric. The original paper details requirements exceeding the mass of the entire observable universe for it to function. Fred has mentioned this in two episodes, uh, so I'm not sure if he's familiar with the work done by Harold White at NASA that seems to theoretically reduce the power requirements from universe mass to the mass of the Voyager space craft. This sort of stuff is well beyond my scope of understanding. I'm talking about myself now. No, uh, but I'd love to hear you discuss it on the podcast and thanks guys and say hi to Mandu, Richard Fox. Thanks, Richard. Mandu said hello to you, I believe. So he's got two questions. The first one in regard to the the idea that Devon came up with about uh, you know daily commutes into space and back and how that might be very, very difficult. But uh, yeah, if we had rotational gravity, artificial gravity, I suppose, could that be a solution yeah, maybe so,
1: um that you could then do the daily commutes if you if you commuted to a space station a bit like the one in two thousand and one, a space odyssey that was in Earth orbit but rotating uh, and had um, all kinds of paying passengers on board, uh, if you could do that i think um, I think richard 's right that the uh, you essentially take away one of the things that does contribute to um, uh, d- deterioration of health in space. There are many others as well, but many of them are um, dictated by uh, the, you know, the fact that you're in free fall, the absence of of, uh, of weight. It's not an absence of gravity; it's an absence of weight. So um, I think that's an interesting suggestion. And once again, uh, I would like to talk to space medics, uh, and I do know a couple. Um, Uh, about that. So maybe what I should do, the trouble is that the space medics I know are all based in the USA, Uh, maybe uh, 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 dropping a line to somebody with that question, and it might elicit an answer, which we could then relay to our knots listeners mm. sometime on the track. So I will check up on that. And the second part of the question, um, well, uh, R- Richard is right that I'm not familiar with Harold White's work. Um, this is all about warp drives, I think. Yes, uh, when, that's right. You know, the, the fact that um, uh, the, the original work suggested you needed the mass of the entire universe to make it work. Um, but uh, new work, and I'm always open to reading new work, and Richard's kindly sent me a reference to it, might change that. So I will have a look at that. And once again,
0: maybe that's homework for me. And down the track, we'll talk about this again. OK, beauty. Thanks, Richard, for your question. Uh, in re- in regard to rotational gravity, it's, it's not something yet we've... Uh, perfected in terms of creating artificial gra- gravity in space. And, and it's something that's obviously going to be seriously looked at, particularly if you're talking long haul space travel. But I do note that there's an organization called the Gateway Foundation, which is planning to put a hotel in space. They reckon it'll be operational by 2025 and will have artificial gravity. So, I mean, that sounds like a pretty ambitious goal. But uh, it is. Uh, I've looked at their website. They have uh, plans to create a hotel for four hundred guests. It'll have restaurants, bars, cinemas, the whole bit, in orbit by twenty twenty five with artificial yeah. gravity. I mean, uh, I, I think they're. <laughs> I think they're probably pushing the envelope a bit. But look, I hope they yeah, pull it maybe off. Twenty
1: thirty five, um, But still, <laughs> you never know. You never no, know. you never know. And, and you know, good luck to them. I um, I I, th- I think. Uh, Space entrepreneurs, uh, they they are forward-thinking people with some great ideas, and not all of them will come to fruition, but no doubt some of them will.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, who would
1: have who would have ever thought that you could land booster rockets back on their tails and reuse them?
0: Well, who, who would have thought in the early years of the space race that we'd be talking space tourism? Yeah. And I, I think uh, orbital hotels are probably not that big a stretch. Um, in fact, just just to and I don't
1: know whether he's got anything to do with the Gateway Foundation, but uh, the Bigelow organisation, which is a chain of hotels in the United States, they've had uh, orbiting modules uh, up in space to test some of their ideas for actually, I think, 16 years. I think it was 2003 the first one was launched. Uh, And these are inflatable modules, Andrew. They're inflatable. Oh, that's right. I remember that. uh, And and the the Bigelow concern is dead keen on turning them into hotels. They've, they've actually got a, an inflatable module on the International Space Station, which is being trialled and I think is
0: forming useful extra space on the, on the space station there. Yes, that's Probably. right. We have talked with. about that before. This, this one would be called the Von Braun Space Station. There you go. Mm. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on that one because there might be something to talk about in the not-too-distant future. Fred, as always, and to you, uh, Mandu, as well, thank you for your company today. We really appreciate it.
1: Um, it's a great pleasure. A man walked off in disgust, he's gone out through the cat door. He clearly felt his comments were not being well received uh, and,
0: um, and has taken his, his comments elsewhere. What a catastrophe. Oh, oh dear I had to yeah. use that one. Thanks, Fred. We'll catch you again real soon. Gene, sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson, joining us every week here on Space Nuts. And thank you for joining us as well. We uh, appreciate your uh, support of uh, the podcast and uh, hope to talk to you again very soon. I'm sure we will. Uh, and uh, don't forget to chase up your fellow Space Nuts on our uh, Facebook uh, podcast group. And we'll see you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. you will be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
1: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or
0: your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from tights.com.